0: Well, as uh, Julian alluded to in the prayers, we live in interesting political times and nothing makes it more interesting than the new administration in Washington. One of the particular features of President Trump's leadership, both before and after his election, is the use he makes of Twitter to express his views and opinions. We saw that in his uninviting of the Mexican president visit this last week and I'm sure we'll see it in the weeks to come as well, but it was a tweet that Donald Trump sent out on New Year's Eve that has really stuck in my mind. It read in those 140 characters, and I quote, Happy New Year to all, including to my many enemies and those who have fought me and lost so badly that they just don't know what to do. Love. It's not exactly undiluted joy, is it really? Now, It's easy to critique a tweet like that, suggesting perhaps that President Trump, now elected, should not refer to people as enemies and to try and be more statesmanlike. Now, of course he should. But I wonder, though, if we'd been through the same experience as Donald Trump, experiencing opposition from within the Republican Party and outside it, through a grueling election campaign, might we not have felt a little bit like him, too? Enemies might be just exactly how he sees the people who've worked against him and have got in his way. And don't we at times also feel like that about people who really go against us? When we've been cheated by a colleague over a deal at work, opposed by a neighbour over a minor planning application, let down by a contractor who hasn't really delivered, treated badly by a family member... Isn't it the most natural thing in the world to see them as our enemies and want to get them back? I still remember with shame how at primary school a group of us turned on the class bully and subjected him to a campaign of harassment because we decided he was our enemy and we knew what to do with them. Isn't that how the world works? In communities, in sporting fixtures, in politics among countries? It's a struggle for power and victory over those who oppose us. The enemy is there to be defeated, isn't he? So what are we to make of Jesus' words? Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Well, as commands, they certainly go against the flow. What are we going to do with these words? Are we going to write them off as well-meaning but unrealistic? Advice from another era? not suitable for our complex world today. I suggest, with these words directed to the disciples of Jesus, if we want to follow Jesus, or even if we're just here this morning, wanted to explore what it looks like to follow Jesus, we can't leave these words out, or simply put them in the too-difficult-to-follow category. We have to try and understand why Jesus said them, and what he intends us to do with them, particularly as they affect our community. Mike said earlier, our vision as a church this year is loving community. And this term, we're looking at how Jesus built that to community through the eyes of the historian Luke. Uh, And these words today, they weren't just addressed to an individual. They were addressed to a community of Jesus' followers. So we need to listen. So please take your Bibles, uh, if you haven't got them open, and, and turn with me to page 1034. It's Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 42, page 1034, of our bibles there's a batting order on a green bit of paper that shows you where we're going three headings a loving community a generous community a repentant community and as we look at this passage through those eyes we'll we'll see what we've already received from god and on this commitment sunday we'll see what offering our lives back to god really involves so first of all a loving community verses 27 to 36. Let's look at these words of Jesus. Just a reminder, though, that although there's a huge crowd around Jesus as he speaks around the Sea of Galilee, it's clear back from verse 20 that Jesus is actually addressing his words to his disciples, those people who've already made a decision to follow him. And going on from the blessings and woes, Jesus starts in verse 27. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who ill-treat you. Jesus is expecting his followers to set a new pattern of living and loving, based not on reciprocity, that is, giving in order to get something back, but rather loving those who don't love you and actually want to harm you. And the word love here, by the way, doesn't mean have loving feelings towards, as in I love pea soup, do you know what I mean? It's not that type of love. The word love here means active, costly, sacrificial love. Hence the examples Jesus goes on of turning the other cheek, giving up your tunic, giving to those who ask. Now, let's be really clear, those were not easy words to hear back then. People had enemies then, just like they do today. The Romans were hated by the inhabitants of Palestine. The Samaritans were despised by the Jews. The, The the Pharisees opposed anyone who didn't keep the rules, and no one like King Herod. So, what Jesus was saying then would have been difficult to live out even back in those days. And it's true as well today, isn't it? These words sound great, and we think it would be really good if we could do them, but we're probably left with a whole bunch of questions reading this. Doesn't doing what Jesus says here turn me into a bit of a doormat? kind of with no shirt on my back and no coins in my pocket? Can I really love my enemies like this? I want to suggest that before we get too tied up in knots about what this is going to look like this time tomorrow, we need to remember two things. First of all, we need to remember this is how Jesus lived and put his words into practice. Jesus was not calling his disciples to love their enemies in a way that he was not prepared to do he put his words into practice. He loved the Samaritan woman when the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. He healed the Roman centurion's servant when Romans were widely despised and written off. But the most powerful example of this comes from the days and hours leading up to Jesus' death. Because there his enemies, both the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities, were treating him so badly. But what did he do? He loved them. He stopped Peter from being violent to them. He let them take his tunic and he prayed for them from the cross. Do you remember that prayer? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This was not a cry of vengeance, but a cry of mercy. Jesus loving his enemies. Jesus did this in practice. Jesus loved his enemies. And second, we were among the enemies he loved. We were among the enemies he loved. This is a really important point to get straight. The real reason Jesus went to the cross was not the Jewish plots or Pilate's judgment. The real reason Jesus went to the cross was because it was God the Father's plan to give up his only son, to take the penalty for every person who has walked away from God, And we've all done that. Respectable or not, the Bible says that by nature we have all put ourselves in the center of our lives instead of the God who made us. And that makes us, in the Bible's terms, enemies of God. Now that may be shocking, that is how the Bible sees it. It it was the Romans that pinned Jesus to the cross, but it was our sin that held him there. And yet the wonderful news of the gospel is that God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for us on the cross and to take the punishment that we deserved, to turn us from being enemies of God, people who were in enmity against him, to turn us to being friends of God. The uncomfortable truth, but the wonderful truth of the Christian gospel is that Jesus loved me even when I was his enemy before I asked it, before I deserved, while I was walking away, Jesus gave his life for me. He loved me as an enemy in a costly, sacrificial way. As this little video reminds us, for all the things I've been, I've never been unloved. I've never been unloved. Those words, while we were still sinners enemies of God, Christ died for us. I think that changes everything about how we're to live out these verses here. Because instead of casting ourselves as the goodies who've got to love people who are really rather frightful, we begin to see ourselves differently. We ourselves see ourselves as opponents of God who've been loved by Jesus. And so all we're called to do is show that same love to others. I'm thinking of two powerful examples of Christians who have loved their enemies. The first one is this guy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor who opposed Hitler and the Nazis before and during World War II. His is an amazing story of courageous leadership against the cultural flow, training pastors to show allegiance to Christ rather than evil regime. Eventually, though, Bonhoeffer was captured. Uh, he was associated in the plot to murder Hitler. And he was imprisoned by the Nazis and was eventually executed at Flossenberg Concentration Camp just days before the end of World War II. But the aspect of the story that that struck me as I was reading a biography about him last year was that for the many months he was kept in prison in Berlin before his execution was how he treated his captors and the prison guards. He loved them. He prayed with them and for them. They came to him for advice, and he gave it. He helped them write letters home. He helped them with some of the practical tasks. In short, in that prison, he loved his enemies. Why did he do this? Well, if you read Bonhoeffer's writings and letters from prison, it's abundantly clear that this was a man who knew God's love for himself. He was aware of how he had received love without merit, and it was this that led him to love his enemies the reason why he put Jesus' words into practice was because he knew Jesus' love for himself. That's what made him love his enemies, that he knew he was loved. The other example I'm thinking of is this lady called Gladys Staines. Gladys was an Australian missionary serving in India with her husband Graham and sons Philip and Timothy. On the night of the 23rd of January 1999, the station wagon in which the family was sleeping was set alight by a group of Hindu fundamentalists, angry at the work that the Staines family were doing among the tribal poor, which had seen a number of people convert to Christianity. Graham and the two boys were killed, and only Gladys survived. You'd have understood it, wouldn't you, if Gladys had turned her back on the community from which came such violence. But she didn't. She stayed in India and continued work among the lepers and the wider community. In so doing that, she was loving the community from which her enemies came. Not only that, she said this about those who were later convicted for the murder of her husband and sons. And I quote from the report in the Hindu, which is a national paper in India. She said, I've forgiven the killers and have no bitterness. God in Christ has forgiven me and expects his followers to do the same. Gladys Gladys loved and forgave her enemies because she knew she had been loved and forgiven by God. I am humbled by those examples of loving your enemy, but they do remind me of the most important point. Loving your enemies starts from realising that you are not on the moral high ground. You and I are sinners loved by God. And all we are called to do is pass that love on to others. That's what's behind those words in verse 36. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. You might include the words, is merciful to you. We have only got to behave to others as God our Father has behaved to us. We have only got to behave to others as God our Father has behaved to us. You can think of it like this imagine that the water in this jug contains the love that we can show and pour out from our lives. Now, we pour out love to someone, but unless they pour love back, this jug gets empty pretty quickly. Under this scenario, loving your enemies who won't love you back looks pretty silly. But imagine that we're standing with this jug under an enormous waterfall Which is filling up this jug as soon as we can empty it. That's what it is to receive God's love and pass it on, even to those who will never love us back. And that's the type of loving community we are called to be. Not just to love the people who will love us back in some sort of closed circle of love. We're called to love in word and deed those who won't love us back, but who need to know that there's a waterfall a waterfall of God's love for them too. When I'm facing a situation where it's hard to love, perhaps someone who's opposed me and made my life really hard, I just think of the way that God loved me when I was an enemy. I try and let that love flow through me. It's not always easy, but it makes all the difference, I can tell you. So I guess what do you need to hear this morning? Do you need to know that there's a waterfall of God's love and that love is for you? Do you need to stand under it and realise that you have been loved? Loved so extravagantly, sacrificially, generously, abundantly, eternally and just to receive that love afresh this morning. Or perhaps there's someone where you need to show love which is really hard but you know that you've got to let it flow from the love that you've received from God. A loving community, because we have been loved much. That's, if you like, the heart of the message from this passage this morning. The the next two points kind of flow on from that, if you'll pardon the expression. We've looked at being a loving community because we've been loved much. Now we look at being a generous community because we've been given much. But let's look at verses 37 to 38, because verse 37 could be a little bit misunderstood. Verse 37, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. That sounds, doesn't it, like a slogan for one of the real buzzwords in our society today, which is tolerance. It it sounds like Jesus is saying, doesn't it, don't make any judgments about anybody or anything. Let everyone do what is right in their own eyes uh, let anything go. That seems to be what Jesus is saying. Only, if you stand back about it for a moment, that doesn't make sense. Because elsewhere, Jesus talked very clearly about what was good and evil, right and wrong. He's just said, woe to you four times. so He clearly doesn't think those people are great. He, he speaks clearly about the place that marriage has in the created order of God. He, he gets hugely frustrated and angry with the Pharisees, that their lack of concern for justice and the poor, whichever way you read the Gospels, you can't turn Jesus into a bloke who went around saying, that's fine, bless. He just didn't do it. Now, what's going on with these verses is this, when Jesus says, do not judge, he means do not make final judgments about anybody. Don't write them off, he says, that's not your job. It would have been really easy for the disciples to go around saying, well, he's a lost case. She's not worth bothering with. Jesus wanted a generous community which gave, rather than a tight-fisted community that wrote people off. Why does he want this? Well, again, it flows from what God has already done. We forgive Because we have already been forgiven. Look with me at verse 37. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. We forgive because we've been forgiven by God. We give because all that we have is a gift from God. I was reading this new book this week by Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's called Dethroning Mammon. And it's a really good read. It's his Lent book for 2017, but you can read it before Lent. It still works. And um, he quotes in this book a French friend of his who used to say these words as a bit of a kind of mantra. C'est tout grâce. C'est tout grâce, which means it's all grace. In other words, it's all a gift. Everything we have is a gift. So when we're called to be generous... We're only called to be generous with the things that we've already received as a gift. The forgiveness that I'm called to show only flows from the forgiveness that I've already received, which was a gift from God. The money in our family bank account may come in as a result of the roles that Annabelle and I do, but ultimately it's all a gift from God. The life that I have, that I'm called to offer to God, well, it's only a life he's already given me as a gift, it's not something I've worked for. And the thing is, when we give to God and to others what is already a gift to us, it seems to me we open ourselves up to receive so much more from him. That's, I think like, like this. If we give to God with a closed fist, but I can't receive much from him in return, all the love and the blessings that he wants to give, if I'm giving it while holding on, But if I give with an open hand, aware that all I have is a gift, I'm ready to receive so much more from him. Not earthly riches, I don't think, but something much more wonderful, his love and his blessing and his presence and his hope and his joy and his love. And, you know, I could go on. Everything that God wants to give, I can give if I give with an open hand. In a moment, we're going to use the covenant prayer to offer ourselves to God for the year ahead. It's a, it's a bold prayer to pray. It's a tough prayer to pray. Because effectively, you are saying to God, here I am. Take me. Please use me in your purposes. It feels to me like it's only a prayer we can pray with open hands. Because we're saying to God, everything I have is a gift. And I give to back to you with open hands, recognizing that also, therefore, I can receive more. More of God than perhaps we ever thought possible. I pray this morning we're going to be a generous community, recognizing that everything we have is a gift of God. One final point. Jesus is calling his disciples to be a loving community because they've loved much. A generous community because they've been given much. Finally, I think he's calling them to be a repentant community. Those verses in 41 to 43, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay attention to your plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's quite a funny imagery, actually, here. You know, planks and specks. It's a reminder that Jesus did speak in a humorous way. We are out to laugh. Um, but it's actually quite a serious point. If either of these aspects, the other two aspects of this new-to-be community are to be possible, that is in growing in love for the unlovable and generosity of heart and action, then there needs to be regular attention to our own need for change than the need for others to change. Because it's so easy to do, isn't it, to think that if only he was more X or she was less Y, everything would be easy. But Jesus is calling us here to look at our own lives, not the lives of others. He's calling for a rhythm of repentance where we examine our own lives and come to God for forgiveness. It's hard to do because it's much more fun, much more enjoyable, and much easier to look at what other people get wrong than rather than what we get wrong. It's quite an enjoyable game but it's much more important to look at what we've done. I remember, and I had a spat with someone not too long ago, not in this church, I was really aggrieved with how they behaved. I kept telling myself all the things they'd done wrong. It made me feel great. What I needed to do was get down on my knees and say, sorry, Lord, for how I spoke to that person because I did not show your compassion or your patience. Please forgive me. If we're going to grow as a loving community, as a church, as a generous community, we'll need to get real about being a repentant community that sees logs in our own eyes rather than the specks in others' eyes. My advice for us is to take confession seriously when we do it as a church, Sunday by Sunday, because it's there to shape our hearts. And as soon as we start noticing somebody else's speck, ask the question as soon as you can, where's the log? Where's the log in my own eye? I sometimes wonder what it would look like for Donald Trump to love his enemies. Perhaps we'll never know. But our task as a church community is not to set unrealistic hopes about what any political system or personality can can or can't deliver. Our task is not to follow the pattern of the world which seems to be increasingly without direction or clear hope. Our task is to follow the way of Jesus Christ and to build a community focused around him. A community where we know that we are loved so that we can love the unlovable. A community where we know we've been given everything that we have so we can give generously to God and others. And a community where we look at the ways we have fallen short rather than simply write others off. This morning as we commit our gifts and ourselves to God for the year ahead, I pray that we'll be reminded afresh of his love and grace so that we can give to God with open hands and be ready to receive his love that will never run dry.